Gracious Father, we praise You for Your immeasurable and inexpressibly great love to us in Jesus Christ. We thank You that we can observe what we cannot measure, that we can taste and see that the Lord is good. And we pray tonight that though we cannot reach the bottom, we may have a fresh sense of the depth of the love of God for us in Jesus Christ our Lord, a fresh assurance that nothing will ever be able to separate us from that love. And we pray as we come, many of us bruised and broken, not only by the fall, but by our own sin and by the cruelty of the world in which we live, and needing a Savior who does not break a bruised reed, nor quench a dimly burning wick, we pray that You would come to us in the grace of Your power and in the power of Your grace, and speak into our hearts, and hold us fast, we pray, to Jesus Christ, that we may look to no other for life, salvation, and eternal joy. So we yield to Your Word, our Father, and we pray that You would come and by Your Holy Spirit teach us for Jesus our Savior's sake. Amen. Please be seated. Now we're reading this evening in Paul's letter to the Romans chapter 8 and from verse 31 through verse 39, although this evening our attention will be focused only on verses 31 and 32, want us to read this whole section together. And as you're turning there, the passage is in the Pew Bible, page 944. Let me uh, simply remind you of the uh, Christmas service we'll be holding here two weeks' time from this evening, the 20th of December. That will be a very special occasion. There will be much music, many choirs, many instruments. It uh, will be a very special opportunity to celebrate together. And thinking about that, we thought that uh, we who have discovered great riches in Jesus Christ uh, would be ashamed of ourselves if we kept those riches to ourselves. And so we're anxious that that uh, Sunday evening, two weeks' time, that you pray and ask the Lord to help you to invite others to come, not least those who uh, very rarely darken the door of a church and have all kinds of prejudices about what they might find, and if the truth were told, some of them desperate fears about the Christian gospel. And often we think if people only came where the Lord's presence was sensed and felt, they would say to themselves, although perhaps not to us, I, I never knew that there was such joy, such blessing, such people as this, such a sense of God's presence. So, as Christmas inaugurates God's great mission in the world, in the person of His Son, let us, let us seek to use it in the spirit of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But that is two weeks' time, and this is tonight. We have no guarantee that any of us will be here in two weeks' time, so let us give 
our attention to this passage in Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. From time to time at conferences in various places, uh, fellow Christians occasionally will approach me with a book and ask me if I would kindly autograph their book. That at first was a very embarrassing experience, but if you do it often enough, you eventually get used to it, although I've never really got used to autographing people's Bibles since I had no part in the giving of sacred Scripture. But sometimes the more insistent among them will also say, would you add a text? Would you add a text? Now, after you've done this 20 times, you begin to use the same text. And I almost always use Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. I have very personal reasons for using them into which we will not go, I think, this evening. But I use them also because they seem to me to be among, if not actually, the greatest of all statements of the Apostle Paul. He obviously is riding on the crest of the force of the wave of his teaching in Romans. And he asks this question, what are we to say about all this? It's as though the waves of gospel assurance and truth have been beating upon the shores of his mind and his heart incessantly in this chapter. All the reasons why it is the Christian believer can be confident that he will or she will never be separated from the love of God in Jesus Christ, grounded on the fact that for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no possibility now of condemnation. And he has unpacked that statement. He has explored that statement. 
He has gone round the outworking of that statement as the Spirit ministers in the Christian believer. He has said at great length what the Apostle Peter says in a few words in 1 Peter chapter 1, that there is a guaranteed inheritance laid up for those who belong to Jesus Christ and those for whom that inheritance is guaranteed, for whom there is no condemnation because they are in Christ, are being kept even now by the power of God in order that they may enter into that inheritance. And so He is poured out upon us, as we've seen in these first thirty verses, reason upon reason, why it is the Christian can joyfully be assured, confidently be anchored to the love of God in Jesus Christ. And it's as though he stands back for a moment and surveys all this. Indeed, it's possible he's surveying everything that he has said from chapter 5, verse 1, when he'd spoken about rejoicing in the, the certain hope of sharing the glory of God, or perhaps he's even looking back to his theme text in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, and saying, now I see and feel how the gospel is not just the grace of God for justification, marvelous though that would be, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's the power of God for the very weakest Christian believer, as well as the very strongest Christian believer, and for every Christian believer in between. The gospel is the saving power of God. So, what are we to say? How can we possibly respond what is our reaction to these things? And so, he answers his own question. He says, oh, my dear Christian brothers and sisters, here is the conclusion of the matter. If God is for us, that is to say, if God is for us in the way I have displayed to you, if He is for us in this way, what can possibly be against us. Now, of course, he's not saying, he's not saying the Christian knows no opposition. He's going on to say, you notice in verse 36, citing the Old Testament teaching, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. There are powers that are ranged against us. There's tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, sword. There are times when everything opposes the Christian believer, and Paul had known such times. So he's not saying, sticking his head in the sand, once you become a Christian believer, you float to heaven on beds of ease. He is saying, at the end of the day, the wonder of the gospel strikes me like this, no matter what opposition ranges itself against me, there is no opposition that can withstand the glorious purposes of my gracious and sovereign God. He works 
everything together for the good of those who love Him. Those He predestined, He called. Those He called, He justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. And Spurgeon's famous words, brothers, there is no stopping this God. And He's full of it, and He glories in it. Who can be against us? Now, the interesting thing is that He doesn't say, what can be against us? I hope you find that interesting. I find it interesting because I believe it's quite deliberate. And I believe it's quite deliberate because you'll notice that all of the questions he goes on to ask, and there are basically four of them, all of these questions begin with the interrogative pronoun, who, as though the apostle Paul has got somebody in particular in mind. You see it in verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Verse 34, who is to condemn? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? The answer is obviously no one. But let's hold off the answer to my question, about whom is he speaking? As we think particularly about these words in verses 31 and 32. Because you see, it's one thing for us to have followed through Paul's teaching. But the sign that that teaching has been understood by our minds and then has begun to grasp our affections, is that it will produce this kind of confidence in us. And you know from your own experience, that is how the gospel works. The truth of the gospel is taught to my mind, but it's never meant to stop at my mind. The gospel doesn't affect me just because I've come to understand it. The gospel affects me and transforms me when the truth of my mind grips my affections. And I say, oh, I say, ah, I say, not just, isn't that interesting? I say, isn't that glorious? I don't say, isn't the Apostle Paul a powerful arguer? I say, isn't the gospel of Jesus Christ the saving power of God for me? I say, if God is for me, who can be against me? And so, the big question is this, how do I know that God is for me. I'll never have this kind of glorious reaction to the truth of the gospel until I'm sure that God is really for me. So, a great question, a huge question for us to ask and to answer is, how do you know that God is for you? How do you answer that kind of question? Well, let me give you two wrong answers to begin with. 
Wrong answer number one is this. Everything works out right in the end, doesn't it? Paul has just said everything works together for good. Yes, everything works together for good for those who love God. But he's made it very clear right from the very beginning of the book in chapter 1, verse 18, that there are many people for whom things do not work out for the good, who are under the wrath and judgment of God. So, that answer will not secure me. Oh, well, there's another answer. It's this. God is prospering my life. We are awash with people today, Christian teachers who teach that very thing. Sign that God is for you is when God is for you, your life is filled with prosperity. So, the great sign that God is for you is you're able to point to this in your life. Perhaps you're able to point to blessings in your home and family or in your business or even blessings in your church. You say, that makes it perfectly clear that God is for me. That is an insecure basis for such a great conviction for this reason. How are you going to be sure that God is for you when everything begins to fall to pieces around you in your life? How are you going to be sure that God is for you when you're in the situation, for example, of a Job? and you have lost much, the very things to which you pointed and said, proof positive God is for me, how good life is, that will not anchor your soul when life begins to taste bitter. No, says the apostle, you need to go somewhere else to be convinced that God is really for you and He tells you where to go in verse 32. And I want to say to you this evening, it is at the peril of your soul that you go anywhere else than this for the assurance that God is really for you. How do I know that God is really for me? Because He is the God who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all. Therefore, I can be sure that with Jesus Christ, He will freely give me everything I need. To put it in a simple word, if you go anywhere else to be convinced of the love of God for you, then ground zero at the foot of the cross of Calvary, you have gone to the wrong place. And those rivers that give you confidence tonight will one day dry up. There is only one river that perpetually flows to the believer's heart with the confidence that God is above all other things and against all possible opposition really for me. And that is because He has proved it to me in this, that He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. Actually, Paul has already hinted at this, hasn't he? And the words were right at the head of our evening worship tonight. God shows His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
Now, I want to parse Paul's sentence here. It's a great sentence. It is an unfathomable sentence, but it's a sentence that we need in some measure increasingly, pray God, have written in our hearts. God is a God who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him freely give us all things? And it's obvious, isn't it, that there are three things here? That's not always obvious even when we say there are three things, but there really are three things here. The first of them is about the Father, the second is about the Son, and the third is about the believer. It's clear, isn't it, that when Paul says God in this sentence, He, God, since He then goes on to call the Lord Jesus His own Son, it's clear that Paul is speaking here about the Father. And what he says about the Father is this, that the Father was unsparing with respect to His Son. The Father was unsparing. He who did not spare His own Son. And clearly to spare in that connection means something like God did not make His Son a special consideration. God did not look at the fact that this was His Son and make Him a, a, some kind of special case. God, in giving His Son, He's thinking about giving His Son to the cross. Did not make exceptions in the case of His Son. The issue is this. God had promised that whenever anyone appeared before Him covered in sin, God would judge and condemn him. And when His Son, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, appeared before Him covered in our sin, God did not start making exceptions to His commitment and say, but this is my Son. He must be treated differently. No, when the Son appeared before Him, bearing our shame, bearing our sin, our Savior was treated as though He were a sinner without special provision being made. And Paul wants us to savor how absolutely amazing this is, and he, he does that by the way in which he describes his Son, He who did not spare His own Son. You catch the flavor of that when you, when you filter into that all that the Apostle Paul knows about the relationship between the Father and the Son, that this is, this is the Son the Father loves. This is the Father's only Son. His only Son. And what is perhaps the most amazing thing of all is that Paul is saying, God did not spare the Son He loved. God did not spare His only Son, 
Let me put it reverently like this. God did not spare the Son who asked that it might be possible that He might be spared. That's the thing that fills my heart with awe. It is an awesome thing that He gives His own Son for me. It is a staggering thing that this is the Son of His love that He gives for me. But when I turn to the Garden of Gethsemane and read as I do, for example, in Matthew chapter 26, that Jesus fell on His face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. If it is possible, Father, spare me this. That's what He's praying. And if that's a deep mystery to you, I think we need to try and understand that if Jesus had not prayed that, He would not have been holy. Because what was in this cup was a sense that His Father was turning His face away from Him. And since the Lord Jesus in our humanity had lived the whole of His life in unbroken communion with His heavenly Father, and that was His chief delight, it would have been contrary to His holy humanity not to shrink back from drinking the cup of Calvary's alienation. But the fact that it was a holy request. Father, if it's possible, is there no other way than this from which I shrink because my whole being longs for Your fellowship, to see the smile of Your face upon me, to contemplate those hours upon Calvary when Your face will feel as though it's been turned away from me, that is hell to me, Father. If there is some other way, Father, let this cup pass from me. And yet at the same time, you see, it's the combination that is so striking at the same time. Nevertheless, not my will. Now, we need to understand that was Jesus' will. That's what He's saying here, Father, this is my holy human will that I shouldn't as, a, as, as, as Your creature, as Your, as your, as your as your obedient servant, the idea of your face turning away from me, it's overwhelming. I could scarcely bear it. And the language the gospel writers use to describe this, they use language that almost conveys the sense that Jesus' mind can scarcely take this in, what is about to happen to him. The marvel of his love for us is that even as this is his holy instinct, O oh, Father, find some other way is that His will is bowed and yielded to His heavenly Father's will. Now, if that had been my Son, the cup would have been removed instantaneously. Don't you think it would be true of your Son too? Especially when you know that that arrow would go straight into your own heart. Paul is saying, this is why I often say when you look at the cross of Calvary, your mind bursts with the thought, does He love me more than He loves His own Son? So, here is the reason why you can be sure 
but God will see you through because He did not spare His own Son. But, now here's an interesting word, He delivered Him up for us all. I wonder if you notice how often you've sung about that in a hymn that doesn't look as though you're going to sing about that, how great thou art. And when I think of God, His Son not sparing, sent Him to die, I scarce can take it in that on the cross my burden gladly bearing, He bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, you see. Then sings my soul. This is what puts awe and weight and glory into the praises of God's people. He has not spared His Son for me. So the Father was in that sense unsparing towards His Son. Second, and this is about the Son, the Son was delivered up. And Paul, I believe, uses that language quite deliberately. This is one of the big verbs of the New Testament. If you go back to the gospel account of the passion of Jesus, this is a verb that keeps on recurring, how Judas plotted to deliver Jesus up, how he did deliver Jesus up, how the soldiers in turn delivered Jesus up to the Sanhedrin, and how the Sanhedrin in turn delivered Jesus up to Pontius Pilate, and how Pontius Pilate delivered Jesus up to the crucifying band of soldiers. It's language that describes the virtual judicial process that our Lord Jesus Christ goes through on the way to Calvary. And fascinatingly, it's so often used in that context, uh, Jesus being by a judicial process, illegal though it was, by a judicial process, being condemned, while everyone who is any part in the event is standing up and saying, He has done nothing worthy of death. He is innocent. He is innocent. He is innocent. And we see there are two parallel lines run through the gospel narratives in the last 24 hours of our Lord Jesus' life. There is the line in which He is being condemned for blasphemy and treason. And there is the line in which witness after witness after witness says of blasphemy and treason, He is innocent. And it's supposed to draw the reader to ask this question, why is this one who has been declared innocent of blasphemy and treason being crucified for blasphemy and treason? Crimes that are not His, in the name of God, for whose crimes is He being executed? And that's precisely the question. In the name of God, He is being executed for my crimes for my sins, in my place condemned, he stood and sealed my pardon with his blood. And the astonishing thing is that it was his Father who delivered him up for our sins. He who did not spare his own Son 
but delivered him up. Actually, I think all of that language brings two passages of the Old Testament Scriptures into our memories. The first is Genesis 22, when you remember Abraham was going to sacrifice his son Isaac. And then God stayed His hand, having said to him, now take your son, your only son, whom you love, up Mount Moriah, sacrifice him. And then, as God has stayed Abram's hand, He says, because you were prepared to do this and not spare your son, I am sparing you. Isaac's words would come true. God Himself will provide a lamb for the sacrifice, so that God Himself in Jesus Christ, as Isaiah would see, as John the Baptist would see as he pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. What Abraham didn't need to do the Father promised to do. He did not spare His own Son. And several times in Isaiah 53, this language is used of the way in which the Father delivered up the suffering servant. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement to bring us peace is upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. This is the heart of the gospel. This and this alone, the measurement of the love of God for me. God demonstrated His love for me in that while I was yet a sinner, he did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, for us all, my friends, for the youngest of us, the oldest of us, the weakest of us, the strongest of us, those who are sought out and those who are dismissed, those who have weak faith, those who have strong faith. He delivered up His Son for us all. Now, you see, when that truth grips your affections, you find that gospel logic begins to take hold of your whole life. If God did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, then, says Paul, there's only one conclusion we can reach. So he speaks of the Father unsparing towards His Son for our sakes, the Son delivered up for our sakes, and now he speaks about the Christian believer finally assured for God's sake. If this is true, then there is something I cannot but deduce from this gospel if He has gone to these lengths for me, I can be sure that with Jesus Christ, He will give me everything I can possibly need. You understand that logic. You drive a great distance to see some sporting event. You've spent several hundred dollars on gas and on a hotel and on 
nice meals for yourself and your family or your friends, and then you go to the sporting ground and you discover they're charging $15 for parking. And you say to your wife, not a bit of it. And your wife says to you, we have not come this length at this expense for you to become niggardly about parking fees. Pay the money. Now listen, if your wife can say that to you, can God not say that to you? If I didn't spare my own son but gave him up for you to the cross of Calvary, do you think I'm going to let you go now? If it cost my son to bring you justification, a right relationship with me, a new heart, the beginnings of the joys, yes, and the struggles of the Christian life. If I have done this much for you, do you think I will let you down now? Now, yes, you say, but I feel let down. There are things going wrong in my life, and I used to look back on those things and say, God is really blessing me. I can trust Him, but they've gone from me now. Oh, says Paul, look in the right direction. Look to the right place. Look to the right foundation. Look to the right guarantee. Look to the right assurance. If I can put it like this, Dear ones, there is nowhere you can go in Colombia to be sure that God loves you. There is nothing that can happen in Colombia that can finally persuade you that He loves you. The only place for us to go to be convinced beyond all possible dispute that He loves us is to go to the cross of Calvary, and look at the cross of Calvary in the light of these verses. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? This is the one who did not spare His own Son, but freely gave Him up for me, so that with Him He might generously give me all things I will ever need to finish this pilgrimage." And you see, only when I'm gazing on the crucified one am I ever finally going to be persuaded that Jesus loves me because His heavenly Father loves me so much that He gave His only Son, Jesus, instead of me on the cross. And it makes me want to sing with all my soul, in my place condemned, he stood and sealed. That is guaranteed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. You're not looking to the wrong place tonight, are you? You're not looking to what you can do to be assured of salvation like this, are you? 
certainly not looking to your church membership or to me or any of your ministers to be sure of that. I would give you that assurance if I could, but I can't. There's only one place you get this assurance, and it's the place where this assurance lasts forever, and it's Jesus, and Jesus only. Look to Him, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. That's the message of Christmas. And it's tonight's message too. Heavenly Father, for the wonder of Your love to us in Jesus Christ, we praise You and ask that like a final wave beating upon the sands of our lives, we may be assured by this truth of the gospel that You never let go those for whom Your Son died. We praise You for this. We, we sense the joy and awe and wonder of the gospel. We pray that we may live in its grace and its power, and we ask this for the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.